Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 134. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 134 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Andrew Oswald, who's a full-time audio engineer in the Oakland, California area. And he co-owns and runs a small studio called, are you ready for it? Secret Bathroom. <laughs> I know. It's a funny name, but I assure you, Andrew is a, uh, a hardworking guy. Uh, basically making records with bands every single day. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have him on uh, is because he, well, he's a friend of Cole Williams, actually. Cole is, thank you, Cole, for introducing us. Um, and he is young, but he has done a ton of records and he has worked quite a bit. So that's always important to me to see somebody who's like out there busting ass on a daily basis. And uh, Andrew is one of those people. He works constantly. He's coming up here very soon. Andrew Oswald here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You can read more about Andrew, of course, at andrewoswaldrecording.com. Check that out. Uh, you can see some of the studios that he's worked at in the past, which include a tiny telephone, new improved, shark bite, studio west, thump, and kitchen sink, and some of the bands that he's worked with, and just some of what he's up to. He's a really, really interesting guy. So that's that. God, I have so much I want to talk about, and I don't want to overdo it here on the uh, monologue in terms of, you know, I don't want to waste your time and just ramble, of course. I try to keep it to around 10 minutes if possible. That's not always possible. Anyway, so a couple things. Um, I want to turn you on to a book that is has nothing to do with audio. Uh, it's called Tools of Titans. It's by Tim Ferriss. Maybe you know Tim Ferriss. He's the author of uh, The 4-Hour Work Week. You know, some people call bullshit on that book, and some people are diehard Tim Ferriss fans. I'm not a diehard Tim Ferriss fan, but I am a fan of this book, Tools of Titans. It's basically, it's interviews with uh, all the people that have been on Tim's podcast, which is an interesting podcast, I got to say. But he, you know, he goes through and he interviews uh, a lot of different people, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Foxx, and he talks to them about all kinds of stuff. And it's uh, it's an interesting read. It's an interesting read to get uh, some uh, motivation out of. And you know, there's some of the things that I ask my guests. Guests, he asks his guests like uh, habits and um, routines and stuff like that. Anyways, I'm gonna put a link to it. I think it's cool. Maybe you'll like it too. But I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it'll be uh, it'll be an affiliate link to Amazon. So the show gets a little kickback if you actually buy the book. No big deal uh, if you want to go around that somehow, but I'm going to put a link to it anyway. So that's that's one thing I wanted to talk to you about. Very cool book. Also wanted to share with you, I've been really digging in deep to absorbing everything I can music and recording wise lately. I don't know what's gotten into me. I'm, I'm just really going on a binge here, whether it's... Um, there's a, there, for example, on Netflix, it's always Netflix, isn't it? They should sponsor the show or they should give me a free subscription. There's a great show. Uh, it's a, um, 
history. It's like a four part series. It's the history of hip hop, hip hop evolution. That's what it's called. And it's really great. It really goes back to the 1960s in the Bronx and really talks about uh, uh, Coke LaRock and uh, Cool Herc and Africa Bombada and talks about really kind of the evolution in the, in the, the origins of hip hop. And for a rock guy, I got to tell you, I think it's brilliant. It's really well done. And uh, I encourage you to check it out. Once again, I'll put a link in the show notes. Had a, a client lend me the, uh, the, the full on big box set that he bought of the Sergeant Pepper's 50th anniversary, which is really also fascinating. I've got the basic disc that's just got the new remix and some of the outtakes. Uh, but this box set that he lent me had a lot of stuff on it and it had a, a Blu-ray with it that I watched the making of Sergeant Pepper. Very fascinating. Also, uh, you know, just going out as well, uh, to things that, you know, there's, there's events that happened, for example, um, uh, I can't remember if I mentioned it on, on a previous show, but, uh, former WCA, um, uh, guest, uh, Miles Boyson put on a dub mixing uh, seminar. It was like only six of us at the seminar. It was a very small gathering, but uh, really interesting, just kind of going over uh, uh, dub type music like King Tubby and uh, talking about the mixing techniques of dub and then all of us getting up on the board and, you know, trying out different mixes and really fascinating. Now, you know, I knew a lot of what was already going on there. It was no big, you know, it wasn't a giant eye-opening experience from, from my perspective and experience, but it was just great to interact with these other guys and also just uh, get a different perspective on how to do stuff. You know, once again, I always emphasize on the show, if you think you know everything, then, you know, there's nothing left to learn and it gets boring. So I did pick up a few ideas and concepts and things that I always like to say that I cherry pick from, from these experiences. Um, also had the pleasure last night of going out to uh, fantasy studios to watch a uh, former WCA guest, Jessica Thompson, and uh, hopefully future WCA guest, Jonathan Weiner uh, from MWorks Mastering. And of course, uh, who's also a consultant to Isotope. They had a, they put on a thing where they were talking about restoration and uh, talked a lot about, you know, noise and how to handle noise and recordings and historical recordings. It was really great. Uh, my friend, Michael Romanowski, uh, uh, mastering engineer was the moderator. It was, it was pretty, pretty fascinating. And actually I'm going out today to a thing called demystifying mastering that uh, Michael Romanowski is going to put on as well. And once again, not a lot of stuff that, you know, is completely new to me. I mean, I, I know a lot of this stuff, but there's always some nugget of wisdom in there that is in between the stuff that you, that they, that they talk about, that anybody talks about in these seminars. It's like the stuff I do know is there. And then in between, there's always some little something that really can just get the brain going and get you thinking uh, maybe a different workflow, a different idea. So I kind of put myself out there to get in, involved in these things. And I think if I just sat back and said, you know, I, I know all this stuff. I don't, I don't need to go to this. You know, it's then, then I think I, once again, life, life would get a little boring. Um, and you know, you run into people. In fact, I ran into former WCA guest, Dan Jasper, location sound guy. He was there 
you know, gathering up bits of uh, restoration ideas and, and sound cleanup ideas for his work in location sound. So it's great to see him. Good to have a, a conversation with him. Um, so, yeah. So this is me encouraging everybody. Don't think you're the smartest person in the room all the time. You know, I know there's a lot of you who are really, really brilliant people out there listening, but uh, there's always something new to learn, uh, a new person to interact with. Possibly some work could come out of it. Maybe not, but don't go into it, you know, with that mentality, go into it with the beginner's mindset and try to try to pick up some new ideas and uh, see what you can learn along the way. Uh, as mentioned in previous episodes, I am at the NAM show this week in Nashville. As I put this out, uh, it's Monday uh, and I leave tomorrow. If you're listening to this on a Monday, I'm leaving tomorrow, Tuesday to go jump on a plane and go head over to Nashville. I will be staying at uh my friend Lid Shaw, another former WCA guest, my brother from another podcast, of course, from Recording Studio Rockstars, and I'll be hanging out there at the NAMM show. Uh, Got to give a shout out to my friends over at Rupert Neve Designs for helping me out with a badge. So if you are at the NAMM show, stop on by uh, the Rupert Neve Designs booth. I will be over there hanging out, probably with some familiar faces you may you may know or may not know. Anyway, stop in, say hello feel free to come over and chat. I would love to, uh, to meet some WCA listeners and uh, chat about what you got going on. So NAM show this week, be doing some uh, great interviews that I'll be picking up while I'm there that I will uh, bring back to the home base and uh, put together in future shows. So uh, lots to look forward to from an interview perspective and some, uh, some more knowledge to be had. Couple sponsor things to mention before we jump into our interview. I uh, do want to give a shout out to our friends over at gearslots.com and uh, remind you that we are sponsoring the uh, subform known as Audio Life. If you head over to gearslots.com, you can check that out. Really fascinating. If you if you like the content we have here on Working Class Audio, you are more than likely going to enjoy uh, the conversations that happen over at Audio Life on gearslits.com. So uh, be sure and check that out. It's it's really great. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Universal Audio. The Apollo Rack Dream Studio promotion uh, has been extended to August 31st. We've talked about that uh, extensively here on the show where if you're buying an Apollo, they're going to give you some uh, credits towards getting some uh, extra plugins because, you know, all the UA products, all those, all the, you know, the DSP based products, the Apollos and uh, the UAD2 products, I should say. Those all come with some basic plugins. And then, of course, they have a, a whole ton of plugins to choose from that you can buy in the store. But in this case, when you buy an Apollo, they're going to give you some extras to throw into the package, which is really great. It's such a great system. I'm a big fan of it. I own a couple Apollos and a twin, and I'm kind of full on on Universal Audio products here, which has been really instrumental in you know downsizing my setup to a high quality setup that allows me to continue to do what I do at a high quality. So at a, at a high level. So yeah, be sure to check that out. Just go to uaudio.com and scroll down. And I have mentioned there is a great video on the site now uh, on the very front page of the site with Jakira King. I highly encourage you to check that out. You'll see it. I mean, you'll go to uaudio.com and load and you can hit play. Be sure and check it out. It's pretty, pretty happening. Also want to mention to you that, uh, it's very strange how this all has come about, but uh, I'm going to put a link to it. I, you may have seen me on the uh, Facebook page mention uh, the band Tiger Touch, which is a band in Portland, Oregon, that I've recently done some mixes for. And it was, what is interesting and ties into the show about it is all the people involved 
have somehow either been a guest or work on working class audio. Uh, so the band of course is Cliff Truesdell's band, Cliff, who does the theme music for working class audio. It's his band. And, um, it was recorded at the hallowed halls by Justin Phelps, who has been on the show. I mixed a, a batch of the tracks, Justin mixed a track. And then, uh, of course, WCA former guest, John Green mastered it. And yeah, so I'm going to put a link to that. You can, uh, you know, feel free to head on over to the to the band's uh, Bandcamp page and listen to one of the singles, or you can go over to iTunes, uh, to the iTunes store. Maybe you want to download it or stream it. It's available all over the place. So just want to mention, I think it's kind of interesting that all of these people associated with Working Class Audio, you know, all coming together to work on this project. So check it out. Tiger Touch from Portland, Oregon. So that's it. Let's uh, get into our interview with our, our guest here. and. Uh, Let's do that now. Andrew Oswald here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're at your studio, which is called Secret Bathroom. Yes. And I have to be honest with you, I have given Cole endless shit about that, about <laughs> that name. I can tell you right now what the, the backstory, if you'd like. I would love to hear it. The name Secret Bathroom comes from when I would record bands out of my parents' house in San Diego when I was in high school. Because there was an extra room that I would record bands in that was like the guest room downstairs. Mm -hmm. And it was connected to a bathroom in the hallway, but then there was also a private door to the bathroom. So uh, it's a band called Towers actually was on tour and recording. And that just didn't have a name because it like my parents' house didn't studio didn't have a name because it wasn't like really a studio. It was just a room. And then they came up with the name Secret Bathroom Studio because I had so much uh, like stuff in there that like the main doors had to get blocked. So you had to go in through that bathroom, that side <laughs> door through the bathroom. <laughs> so they called it a Secret Bathroom Studio. And then when we were building what is now technically Secret Bathroom 2, I guess, <laughs> we had just lists and lists of like names that we were trying to think of. It wasn't like necessarily the intention to call it Secret Bathroom again, uh -huh. but we just couldn't come up with anything better. And, and that was on there. And I had also, you know, had a few recordings from San Diego that not a lot of people had heard, but enough people had heard. And when I was at, I went to Expression and when I was at Expression, I would always use recorded at Secret Bathroom Studio or when I was recording in like a kind of like more DIY warehouse location kind of thing, mm -hmm. I would credit it as Secret Bathroom Studio um, because Expression there's like some like subcontract that they have the right to use anything that was recorded there for promotional reasons. Oh, so <laughs> interesting. So we're, um, we're in Oakland, California. We're in a pretty, we'll just say a pretty, uh, crime challenge neighborhood. Would you say? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a pretty like large homeless encampment around the studio. Not so much theft being a problem. as just like, visible drug use yeah but actually everyone is like they're actually really courteous neighbors in their own way i think there's like an understanding that like we don't report them or like or or like aren't don't actively try to push them out or do anything like that right and like as long as they're not like messing with us or trying to steal anything we've never had a car broken into uh -huh. which like i live on 25th and telegraph in downtown which is arguably a nicer neighborhood but i get like my girlfriend's car gets broken into, you know, like three or four times a year. Uh huh. So there is a weird, there's a, there's a, there's an interesting code specifically to this block between the kind of large homeless encampment. 
And, and, and uh, not to say that, I mean, if somebody's homeless, that does yeah. not necessarily, I'm not trying to say that that indicates instant crime. Yeah. But it's definitely like, unless unless you're accustomed to that, it's definitely uh, a yeah. little bit of like a, oh, what's what's going on here? Yeah, it, it, it can be jarring visually. I think, you know, most of the time it's not a problem because, uh, you know, most of the bands that we record are like young, broke kids that also live in West Oakland. But uh, it, I have like talked to people and like some like books on tape or like kind of voiceover work been apprehensive work that I feel like caters to like a more older nine to five crowd. Yeah. I have like been like, maybe we're not the right space, even though like technically we're equipped for it because I felt like that, you know, musicians are one thing, but, but someone that's recording books on tape might not be as okay with the outside of the studio. I've had this conversation a lot with people, you know, studios tend to gravitate towards uh, neighborhoods such as this because it's cheaper. And there's yeah. usually a willing landlord who would love to have a reliable tenant. Yeah. And the whole story behind how we got this specific location, I was living across the street, um, a really cheap room. Like I think it was like 250 a month or something. I was like fresh out of college. So it was like the perfect place if you're trying to be a recording engineer for a living because, you know, it's it was dirt cheap and I wasn't making very much money. I had talked a little bit with uh, the co-owner of Secret Bathroom, Max Senna, about trying to find like a warehouse space that we could like live and set up a recording studio. And then we had some friends that were living that aren't there, not really friends as much as acquaintance, that had kind of like a like kind of like warehouse punk house thing that had shows in one of the units in this complex, which has six units total. Just one of the units opened up, you know, it's, it was dirt cheap, so it, to buy. To, uh, no, we don't own it. We're okay. still renting it. Never had the 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 rent raised. Okay, but um, it's a thousand dollars a month for the whole place. Okay, so it's really cheap. It's like less than a dollar per square foot. Just so we're clear, we're, we're talking about this place, yeah. not the place you were living across. No, the, street. the place that I was living across the street was only two hundred and fifty. Okay, so how and how long have you been in this location? We've had this place for five years. Okay. Maybe six years now. So your your overhead is pretty low. Rent's never been raised here. That's great. Um, That's really the key. Yeah. Our landlord is pretty absentee, but just like as long as like, I think it's just been not filled for so long that as long as someone pays on time, they just like totally don't care. Yeah. Also, don't do anything if anything breaks. But you know, it's like, <laughs> there's just a like, pros and cons care. to absentee landlords, and that's, yeah. that's the con. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, but so we got in, you know, at a time that it was easy to do this in Oakland. You can charge a reasonable rate to to bands. You could still make money. You can reinvest in the gear and what you're doing, and it just it's a comfortable situation. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I mean, and it just happened slowly, you know, uh -huh. like I think at the time I was uh, working a lot out of a few studios, one that's not around anymore called Shipwreck, yeah. which was Jonah's spot. Jonah's spot, He's yeah. now has another spot called Survivor Sound. New Improved was another big one and uh, bigger budget stuff I would be doing at like Tiny Telephone. So less, maybe like one or two records out of there a year, you know, like five to 10 out of New Improved and then like 20 out of Shipwreck. Mm-hmm. But um, having my own space made it, I just wanted like a space that I could track bands live for really cheap. And that's kind of what this started out as. So like 
we had like a 002 for like the first, I don't know, year or so, you know, and we were just recording with a 002 and we like had the space, but it, it, it grew slowly. I guess how every, like, it wasn't like we had a lot of money up front and a lot of gear up front. And then we're like, we're the new studio in town. It was just, you know, we, I had the bands and they needed a space and a space, like a lot of them, you know, new improved and tiny telephone and shipwreck were all cheap, but bands are broke. So like this started out being like a mixing space for me that like wasn't a bedroom. And then also just like a place that I could record bands that couldn't afford any other studio. What compelled you to want to build a studio or be in a studio as an owner? Part of it is just the logistics, like logistically you can charge less and make more money with your own space. So it makes it easier to live. Even when when I was working out of those studios, I've always had a mixing space for years, my bedroom, but I always needed a space that was like kind of mine to like mix records because I just like didn't, I didn't have the chops, I think. And I needed the time at the time to like really get mixes that I was happy with when I was starting out at other studios because when you're starting, you kind of need time to experiment. And that's like a lot to ask for a band to pay for that at someone else's (laughs) studio. Yeah. So like when I was tracking there, most of those records were still, not all the time, but most of them were still getting mixed like at, in my bedroom. You know, having a spot that's not my bedroom that you can acoustically tune and like get comfortable and set up was like a big part of it. But also it's, you know, I didn't realize all of the benefits of having my own studio until I kind of had it. Because like the big part of it was just the opportunity was there and like me... I, I was young and naive and wanted to, and could make it happen. So I, you know, made it happen. Max too, with the, with Max, it was just like, we had an opportunity where we had a warehouse that we could like afford because it was cheap. What's Max's last name again? uh, Max Senna. Senna. Okay. So he's your partner in this building. In this building. Yeah. And, and we, so we like paid for the build together. Yeah. Interesting. So some of like a lot of like the early gear we, we split now it's kind of like, we, we like co-own most of like the i don't know what to call it important gear that a studio needs like the computer the console the big the monitor things controllers that cost yeah and then like you know like microphones or compressors that kind of stuff is like we individually buy but keep here and you know anybody can use it but but yeah cole had told me that uh you were recording in high school yeah so i had like a digi 002 and well i i like started recording bands on like this little I don't know if it was cassette or digital, like eight track. I think it was digital that like my friends had borrowed. Uh-huh. And I just like thought it was really cool. So I started like tinkering that. I've played in bands for a really long time since I was like 13 and started going to punk shows. So I started like tinkering with that. And then I think that, you know, like. This is in San Diego. This is in San Diego. And, you know, my parents, San Diego suburb, my garage was kind of like I had a drum set and I played drums and friends could come over. So it kind of became like the hangout. Nathan Aguilar is a very successful musician. He played in Cults and uh, he plays in Walter in a band with Walter Schreifel from like Quicksand and Youth of Today called Dead Heavens now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've known each other since then. His dad brought over like a little four or eight track like digital recorder, one of those all-in-one things with the CD burner that he had because her, his sister is actually also a musician, really great opera singer. So he he got that to record her singing opera. And then I just kind of started tinkering around with it, just like seeing what I could do. And then eventually switched over and bought like a like Pro Tools rig, like a 002 and like a computer mm-hmm. and then started recording like my friend's bands and my own bands and, and then like 
that kind of turned into something that I did a lot. So I'd be like, you know, every weekend or recording friends bands. You'd be the guy. Yeah. in this little community of high school kids. <laughs> and then, uh, so when I was 17, I went to take Pro Tools classes, like the certification classes that you could take at a studio called Studio West, which is a really like probably the biggest studio in San Diego. And from there, I started interning there. So I interned there for like the last year of high school because I went to a, like independent study high school. So I like filled out packets and just like hung out and played drums all day. Kind of a self-guided study program. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was like, it was just something that my school district had that like after a certain amount of credits, you could opt into this thing called New Directions where you just like are homeschooled, but you go once a week and you get, then you fill out these packets and do like a course for an hour with your teacher hmm. once a week. So a few friends did that. So it kind of allowed us to all play music. And um, that was kind of off topic. But back to the trajectory of how it all started is I interned at a studio for a year in San Diego and then moved up to the Bay Area to go to Expression when I was 18. Wow. Yeah. What was your experience like at Expression? Positive and negative. Mm -hmm. I think it, it allowed, first and foremost, there's like the teachers and like a lot of the staff there are really great. I feel like the administration is oftentimes disappointing and we're hard to deal with. This is before SAE bought them, right? This is, yeah, this is probably about five years before SAE bought them. Okay. I feel like part of the problem with a school like that is that they try to teach you too much of everything. So you learn a little bit about a lot of things. I feel like you, there could be an entire college program based on being a live sound engineer, an entire college program based on doing audio for video games, an entire like bachelor program of doing sound for film an entire bachelor program of like recording music but instead you go through the amount of time for a bachelor program and learn a little bit about all of those things so you i don't feel like i don't feel like the school really leaves you leaves most people with a lot of skills that they would need to to get a job in the field it it was also just like you know it was it was what you did with it so i got i recorded bands at the studios because you got the free studio time. Having that free studio time in a nice studio is what helped me be able to launch where I am now. And I definitely learned a lot there, but I also don't feel like expressions is what facilitated me being here right now. It's just more of like a byproduct of, of what I was doing, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, in retrospect, I don't think I would have gone if I knew what it would be like at the end of it, I probably, or if I had gone, I would probably try to go to like a traditional college to finish general eds and then maybe go there. But um, it didn't hurt, but I don't know how much it really helps people that are trying to be up and coming audio engineers. Yeah. I guess if you have a, a clear direction of what you want to do, and it sounds like you kind of did. I'm a weird anomaly where I knew kind of what I wanted to do with my life at like 14 never changed. <laughs> so yeah, once again, I think that that lack of ability to go deep into one topic, yeah. you know, I, it seems like it would make more sense to me to say, I, this is what I really want to do. Yeah. And then say, okay, well, we're going to drive you deep into that program and then we'll have a couple extra classes yeah. just to supplement that, but nothing that's going to eat up a lot of your time. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I, I have no experience with it. I, I never went to recording school, and yeah, I've heard a wide variety of opinions about it. And S and and expressions has gone through 
a lot of changes over the years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, a lot, I, th- I feel like a lot of the pitfalls of expressions is the pitfall of like every like private for-profit college. Hmm. You know, it's like it, those institutions tend to be predatory. <laughs> well, so after expressions, where, where did you wind up? And were you in debt after you got out of expressions? Full disclosure, I'm still in student loans, but my parents pay my student loans. They wanted to put me through college. They oh, were okay. kind of the ones that pushed me through to go to college. They both have their PhDs. Education was really important to them. Uh, so that was so going to expression was like I knew that I wanted to be a recording engineer, and this was a college that did it. My yeah. wife and I are saving for our kids to go to college because we don't want them to wind up in in debt afterwards. So, yeah, you know, I, no judgment there. Yeah, whatsoever. Half just like their savings and then half student loans that are still there. I don't know. I think that they'll be done within a few years. But, but you know, the whole post-recession thing was hard too because I feel like they had a trajectory and a certain amount of money saved up mm-hmm. and like a plan for that. But then, you know, 2008 hit. Huh, yeah. Uh, first year in college and, and, you know, everything changed financially for my parents after that. I will I will say that 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 um <clears throat> 2007 2008 recession or the beginning the beginnings of that in, in late 2007 was if that hadn't happened I don't know if this podcast would exist to be honest with you. From listening to the show that was right when you that was like around the turning point where you had to leave coast, right? Yeah. Oh no, well no, that was actually when I just got in. Just got in. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's hot. That's rough time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. enough about me. Let's let's continue yeah, with you. Yeah. So after you get out of out of expressions, you're not saddled with debt. What's what's the next plan there? That was when I was just like living in that room for like 250 scraping by eating ramen and uh so while i was in expressions two people that were really important for me starting to like be a professional recording engineer who both have been on the show were jonah and eli oh so jonah i met at mama buzz uh which was like a venue coffee shop i was just like talking about recording with a friend and he overheard it this was while i was in expressions and then he we made a trade where I like he gave me a few reels of tape because it was at the time that he had bought like this palette of like unused tape. So he had a lot and I wanted to like an expression you had to bring your own tape if you were going to use the tape machines. So I wanted to like be able to do some records to tape. So we did a trade where I helped him wire the uh, his, his, his patch bay essentially just like the terminations to the outboard gear from his patch bay. And that was when I started recording at Shipwreck because then I was like, oh, cool. There's a studio. You know, and um, like the first record I did there was like a record for this black metal band, Ashbore. And that ended up being like one of the most successful bands that I've worked with, where like that record ended up, I think, being like number 30 something on like Pitchfork's best metal records that year. And then the record that we did after that was like number eight or six or something like that. So that, wow. that ended up being pretty successful. Another friend from high school in San Diego. So that was all while I was at Expressions. And then Right out of Expressions, I met Eli. Actually, I might have still been at Expressions, but at the end of it, because I had recorded a local band called Religious Girls and done a EP with them at Expressions, two songs, and tracked that. And then I was originally going to do their next record, but then Eli actually approached them at a show and was really into it. And you know, he, this is at a point, too, where he never really did that anymore but he offered to record them for free but so they were like okay but we also want like andy to come with us and that's how i met john Vanderslice and eli that day because tiny telephone ended up having a cancellation 
So we ended up tracking, Eli ended up tracking religious girls with me there at Tiny Telephone instead of New Improved. But then hmm. it was- At Tiny dur- Telephone, Oakland or San Francisco? Uh, San Francisco. So, and then I kept working on that record with Eli. And what would happen is at some point, he would just be like, hey, do you want to just finish up the day? You know, like I want, I'm going to go have dinner with my <laughs> wife and kids. I'm going to leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I got keys to New Improved through that. So then um, being able to track it, shipwreck and New Improved and having like cool, like local studios, you know, was a big part of me being able to record bands because it's mm-hmm. no longer being like, hey, I want to record your band. I don't really know where. Maybe we'll do it at my house. It was like, hey, we can, you know, go record at the studio that like Deer Hoof and Y recorded at, you know. I want to talk a bit about the trust factor because as, as a former studio owner and somebody who's had, you know, keys to the kingdom will say to hand keys over to somebody is an is a big act. Yeah, it's a big act of trust. Um, and I I'm curious to hear about it from your perspective of, of being on the other side of that and being handed the keys. What did that mean to you to to get keys to these places? I was really excited to be working at New Improved. Just like to be at that studio, I well still am, but at the time was like a huge Y fan. He had just finished, Eli had just finished mixing, what was it, Alopecia? I can't remember the record that came after that. And then also, you know, like Deerhoof had done a lot of tracking for Offend Maggie there. So this was like this place that like had done records that I really liked at the time, you know, some of my favorite Bay Area bands. So it was kind of surreal. It felt scary kind of, you know, but like I always like have... You know, I think part of it was too, just like being so young when I was getting into all of this, because I was I, maybe 20, 21. I don't, I'm not even sure if I was like legally allowed to drink yet when all of this was <laughs> happening. So I also felt aware that I probably look like an insane young person. So I would try really hard. I'd always like try to like normal everything as much as I can, wrap the cables as nicely as I can, try to like leave it cleaner than I got it because I'm like a kid. <laughs> I'm at this studio and it all seems surreal. And, but I mean, it sounds like you had a sense of obligation to, yeah. to try to like not screw it up. Yeah. I feel like I was like very self-conscious when I was that young about not trying to like seem like a young kid. So mm-hmm. maybe that factored into that. I had also, you know, there was like, I think two or three days of tracking at Tiny before we started overdubbing on that record at uh, New Improved. So like I had spent a fair amount of time like talking with Eli, you know, that's like what, 30 hours or something, which is a lot of time to spend with someone. So uh, something must have uh, like rubbed off from that interaction where he thought that I was responsible enough to have keys. But I feel like being able to record at New Improved gave me like a weird um, another level of reputation mm-hmm. that like I may not have recorded a lot of bands, but like someone thought I was, you know, smart enough to be able to use this studio. Yeah, I think that it really helped a lot being able to use, like have access to those studios. It's definitely a boost to one's confidence. Yeah. To say, oh, this person trusts guess, me and they believe in yeah. me. Yeah. I think it gave me an air of legitimacy is what I think I'm trying to say. Yeah. At the time, which is an important part of trying to be, become a recording engineer. Bands are trusting you with a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, that's always been, I think, one of the most important philosophical aspects of making a record for me is that like a band is like 
it's not something to take lightly when a band trusts you to try to make their record. That's something that's forever. Yeah. That's it, theirs. That's not yours. Yeah. That's a good point. So how long did this go on for that you were working out of uh, New Improved and, and Shipwreck? Probably altogether two or three years before I got, um, before we got the lease on this place. And I think that like, so like this was going at the same time as Expression too. So like, I, th I think that I was still on Expression when I was working at New Improved. So I remember that was, that was actually kind of like a problem with Expression is they would try to like fail me for attendance, but I was taking time off of classes to actually record in the studio. So like I, that was part of like the, the, <laughs> the problems with the administration that I had. And the teachers wouldn't want to fail me because they were like, he has an A in the class or whatever. But it would, they have this attendance policy that they have to keep. I think it's because of their accreditation. Yeah. And, it, and since it's already an accelerated program, if you miss this, if students have to be a certain amount of hours, but this thing where I'm like, I'm not not go record at this studio. Going to Tiny Telephone for the first time was a dream. My favorite bands in San Diego would go up and record there. To be there was crazy. And then mm. the, my first session there was crazy. It was something that I had wanted to do since high school. Hmm. I'm not going to give up going to Tiny Telephone for three days to f finish this class about like video game design <laughs> that I'm not going to use, you know? Andrew Oswald here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Time for a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio Technica. And I want to hip you to this. This is really cool. It's it's an old blog post, but it's such a cool thing that that happened that I think it, it bears mentioning. And this is called, uh, uh, this is a thing that Audio-Technica sponsors. It's called Jam in the Van. And basically, it's, uh, it's the world's first and only solar-powered mobile recording studio. And what they've done is they've taken a 38-foot-long Winnebago Holiday Rambler RV and they drive it around and they record people. And of course, Audio-Technica uh, sponsors that, provides them with mics and headphones and such. I'm going to put a link in the show notes and you've got to watch the YouTube video. In fact, I think they have a, yeah, they have a YouTube channel and you can watch these different performances uh, performed inside the van. And of course, you know, you know, there's copious amounts of Audio-Technica mics and headphones everywhere for you to check out. But Really, really cool thing. And it looks like that uh, the Jam in the Van crew has, they've been around doing this in places like South by Southwest, Lollapalooza, Outside Lands, and uh, Live on the Green. Over 600 bands and artists have been tracked, streamed, and promoted through the uh, the Jam in the Van, uh, including Gary Clark Jr., Alan Stone, Lucas Nelson, and Andres Osborne. So uh, yeah, check that out. I will, it's, if you look in the show notes, if you're not listening on the website and you're on iTunes or something, go on over to workingclassaudio.com. And if you look uh, for today's, for, for, for this episode, if you look at the bottom of the page, I will have links to the YouTube videos uh, to check out Jam in the Van. So uh, yeah, a little shout out to Jam in the Van and of course our good friends over at Audio Technica. So uh, that's it. Let's get back into it with Mr. Andrew Oswald here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Take me into the, to the creation of, of Secret Bathroom, this incarnation of Secret Bathroom, in terms of planning, money spent, and how you and Max put it together. Yeah, well, we had been friends for years, so it wasn't really talked about. The opportunity came, so we took it uh, and kind of have taken everything as it comes. Mm -hmm. The financials behind it was, you know, we both had like a small amount of money saved, and I got a Sweetwater credit card, and he got a Home Depot credit card for paint and whatever. <laughs> 
And we just kind of made it happen. Where did you spend your money? It happened like really slowly because, you know, I had like some microphones and he had some microphones, you know, like Beta 52, a few SM57s. I had like, you know, those, still have them, but the Octava, those small diaphragms that everybody has that are pretty good. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a 002. I think he had a 003. So I think we actually installed that first and you know i already had studio monitors and so it was all pretty like slow at first it was just like putting in the gear that we already had there wasn't like oh we have the space now let's go spend ten thousand dollars on on gear you know so so did you have a philosophy of what you were willing to do and what you were not willing to do i don't know if it's what we were willing to do i think it's what we could do what we had the ability to do so I, once I got the Sweetwater credit card, I think the first big thing that we bought were these Orion 32s and then, you know, paid that off after a few years. And then I think I'd like for a while we had a Control 24 because it just like came up on Craigslist for really cheap. You know, I think it was like 1200 or something, something not a lot of money. So um, probably just like split that because, you know, we had some money saved and then that came and then it was like slowly things would come and come and then... I think we really wanted to sell the Control 24. It was never something we wanted forever, and it was right before Pro Tools 12 was coming out, and it was like not compatible with Pro Tools 12. It still might have worked, but it was no longer officially supported. Right. So, like once that announcement came, you know, we were both pretty nervous about it retaining its value. So <laughs> that was right around the time that they were selling the new improved board, which was also just like they were trying to get rid of it for really cheap. It was like three thousand. Yeah. So we just Amac Einstein. Yeah. And it was cool because I've worked on it before, you know, so it was like nice to buy something from a place that I used to work at and yeah. on, used, buy gear that you've used before. So we just hopped on that, sold the Control 24, huh. which was right around the time that I think that like it would those probably go for like that a few hundred dollars now that they're not compatible. Do, what do you think your gear buying decisions were based on? Uh, opportunity. <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, which has kind of always been like, I mean, uh, you can always want, there's always like a million pieces of gear that I want that I can't afford. Right. Right. All at once, at least. So I uh, I generally just try to like ha save money, be like, okay, this is gear money. And then not try to get too attached and then just try to buy something when it comes up really cheap and try to buy things that retain its value. Certain things don't retain their value. Computers. The one thing I, I I'm kind of a mic nerd. I'm not super into gear the way that other audio engineers are i think like i don't remember model numbers and but i i love microphones those are like the one thing that i really nerd out about so when a band comes to you what do you think you bring to the table as um, a studio and as an as, as an engineer what do you what do you attempt to try to do i think i guess what i bring to the table is like i've made a lot of records and i I know how to navigate the sea of what it means to make a record. And then I will accom like I accommodate helping you figure out how you make the record that you want. It's like, I think a lot of times bands know where they're going, but they don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. So I think oftentimes I'm the person that helps them know, figure out how to get there. I think that the biggest part, I think that the biggest, most important thing for any recording engineer is to be a part of a music community. And I think that less than like what I give to bands is that I'm the engineer that's a part of a community. And, you know, like I've played shows with your bands. I've seen your band at shows. You, we've talked, 
we've talked about records that we like. We have like a similar, we're on a similar page. You feel comfortable. I think that more than like having gear or any other thing that I think the biggest thing that brings bands in is a sense of community with the studio. And that sense of community means that they feel like they will be understood when they're there. I think that's very important. Good, good point. But it also raises the question, did you ever consider going back to San Diego? No. <laughs> a firm short no. Okay. Um, San Diego is great. San Diego was awesome growing up. It was a really cool place. I would go see shows at the Shea Cafe all the time, playing bands. I got to go on my first tour when I was like 17. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for being cool. But, you know, almost everyone just like moved. And I'm sure there's some sort of scene there now. Mm -hmm. But the scene that I was a part of has just really scattered across the Bay Area. Lots of people in the Pacific Northwest, lots of people in New York. But it's just not there anymore, for me at least. Plus, it's your hometown. Yeah, and I think everybody, once they leave their hometown, it's... It's hard to go back. It's hard to go back. I couldn't go back to my hometown for to live. Yeah. Which is strange because I'm actually making a record or mixing a record for a band from my hometown. It's an amazing band. I can't believe they're from my they're hometown. From yeah. I mean, the, the, the people that I met in high school that I played music with, super important for everything that I've been able to do now. You know, I was just on tour doing sound for that band Ashbor in Europe, hanging out. Like a lot of the bands that I recorded that, you know, I feel like were bands that helped have people listen to records that I've recorded were like, at least for a long time, not people I met in the Bay Area were like friends from San Diego that would come to mm -hmm. the Bay Area and record with me. Ashbor, Fell Voices, the first session that I had at Tiny Telephone was with um, uh, a kind of short-lived project called Census that was Nathan Aguilar, who I mentioned earlier. Those opportunities were all from, you know, being a part of a small insular music scene <laughs> growing mm -hmm. up. Do you have a routine that you do a lot of people have morning routines that they do. Some people meditate. Some people go do yoga. Some people smoke pot. Um, is there anything like that that you think is is important to you to how how you operate daily? You know, to go back to what we were talking about, the benefits of having your own studio. That is like one thing that I didn't realize when I had built it. I come here, I clean up, sweep a little bit. I get usually get here like two hours before the bands because it's my own space. I know what house gear they're using. So I'll like set it up and set up mics. So that is kind of like my audio engineer routine, that and making yerba mate. Every, like I come, I boil water and I try to get as much set up for the session as possible before anybody walks in. Yerba mate? Yeah. What is your... It's like a caffeinated tea. Oh, it's got caffeine in it. Yeah. Mm. It's my. It's been my coffee. Hmm. But it just makes things flow so much faster when people aren't sitting there. And like, I know that I'm not getting paid for that time, but the, the ability for the session to run smoother, you know, being there for 10 hours and having it be good versus having it, having to like have anything happen is totally worth getting here early. And I try, you know, if I can have everything set up and obviously once we sound check i'll change the mics out it's not that we're done but you know so the band's not just sitting there bored for two hours while you're setting up mics on a drum kit and checking them you know it's it really it really helps like i said all, all goes back to being the advocate for the band you know, well, i grew up listening to punk and yeah. i think a lot of steve albini's philosophies in regards to the role of the band in the part of making the record are you know true 
to me at least that's not the most elegant well, way no, to say no, that. no but it also like I, I love the fact that you come here and you you kind of go through your routine and you get acclimated and get prepared for the band so that when they show up as you said things roll you know you could go to the the best restaurant on the planet but if you've got to wait an hour for your meal doesn't matter how good the food is you're still going to be like yeah the food was good we had to wait about an hour and i think if you can roll into you know st- staying on that kind of restaurant analogy if you can roll into a restaurant sit down get waited on get the food to your table pretty quick that experience of not having your time wasted is re- yeah. is really important and i think it, it it is incredibly true in studios if a band can show up okay we're ready to go yep so am i let's do it yeah. You're off to the races. And yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot more fun. Yeah. And I, I just firmly believe that the less the band has to think about the technical side of recording, the better it is for everybody. Because it's the more that they can focus on the record as the record, as like something that somebody's going to listen to, mm-hmm. not as a series of choices and microphones and this and that. They can focus on what they do best, which is having a vision for what they want the end result to be. Yeah. Plus there's a sense of victory that I feel personally when a band shows up and you've already line checked all the mics and all you got to do is put stuff in and, and I would prefer to be waiting on them than them waiting on me. Yeah, totally. You're fairly young and you seem to have your shit together in many ways, but you've got years ahead of you. So what do you think the future is going to hold? I hope that Everything keeps growing. I feel like I learned a lesson early on. So Ashbor's record being number eight on Pitchfork or whatever, I had this idea that like, oh, this is cool. I've done that. Now that's the career stepping stone and everything's going to be easy now. But then it wasn't. And, you know, so many things as an audio engineer are out totally outside of your control. And whether a record does well has so much more to do with its timing and other factors around it that you have no control over than it being a great record or you doing a really great job with that record, that I try to be somewhat detached from the outcome of what happens to the records once they leave here. Because I feel like it can also, like, A, it can be really personally disappointing when you put a lot of work into something and it, for whatever reason, the label's PR, like the label got too busy and they forgot to do PR for it. You know, I just not, I try not to expect anything to happen because nothing's really a given in the world of music. You know, I would hope that, you know, things get bigger. I'm working on records that more people are listening to, still with the same community that I'm a part of, that it grows together. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it would be cool to go if the opportunity happens to like go to a slightly bigger space, but I'm also like, like the size of the studio here. Um, but, you know, just be a point where the studio is running on its own and can have some outside engineers. I, you know, am working on like bigger records and able to travel and do other records and pretty much just do what I'm doing, but on a larger scale. It's interesting. You said disassociate after the record's done. You kind of have to do that because yeah. you almost have to put all of your energy into just the making of the record and taking care of the band. Yeah. Because if you get caught up in what happens afterwards, I mean, it's out of your control anyway. I, you know, spent a lot of years where I really cared about it. And like, I would be sure that this record would be the one that is really big. And then like, is makes people, you know, maybe then I like, am known more or less just locally and, or not just locally and nationally, but that's, that's up to the universe to decide, you know? And so I don't, I like, So I have, it's not that I don't have goals. It's that I try to be, 
I, I try to I try to always remember that that's the case of like that that's what it means to be an audio engineer is dealing with that so like I don't I try not to have too many expectations because those expectations I can work nothing that I can personally do can make those expectations happen because a lot of that just you know is like did that record that you recorded get really big and did that record that you recorded get big enough that your other bigger bands are hitting you up. What do you do to uh, continually educate yourself? Listening to records, I think, is like the big part. It's like the like the biggest thing that you can do, which is also the most understated. But, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm always reading books or whatever. I'm about to start reading Art of Mixing. It's every few years, I'll reread Bobcat's uh, Mastering Audio. <laughs> and um, there's some, like, online videos that are cool. But I feel like the problem... I, I watch them all the time, so it's not like I don't watch them, but it's hard because you get the same information so much, but then if you get that one trick, you get that one trick. Making yourself a better recording engineer is learning a lot of tiny things that can help you when the situation calls for it. Mm -hmm. And wherever you can get those yeah, tiny wherever bits you can of get information. Those, you can get them. It's like all of the little techniques and tips and tricks that you can get just all become part of like your you know, portfolio of what you can do. As long as you don't get just totally, it's important to not get engulfed by what you can do. But, you know, I think it, it, it takes, and it took me a long time to start like when you're mixing or making a record or editing, on, only doing something because you want the outcome of what you're doing, not because you know how to do it and can do it. You know, so I feel like it's identifying a problem and then knowing the solution. And the tips and tricks are like knowing the solution, but you still need the more esoteric knowing the problem, uh, which comes from just like time and listening and pulling your hair out, <laughs> taking a break, coming back, realizing it was fine to begin with. On that note, thank you for uh, having me here. <laughs> no, it's great. I love the show. It's a huge honor to be on it. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Andrew Oswald here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Young up and coming guy who is working his ass off. And I think you're going to hear a lot more from him in the future. Really smart guy and really super nice guy at that. So wishing him luck in the future, but we got to go. We're out of time. So of course, let's thank Mr. Cliff Truesdell and let's thank Mr. Cole Williams, and Mr. Chuck Smith. And we want to thank our sponsors, gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, Universal Audio and Lawton Audio. And of course, thank you as usual for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>